Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of the Glasgow Museum's podcast. I'm Harry Dunlop and today I'm joined by my colleague Steph Diavoma. Steph is one of our team of conservators based here at Glasgow Museums. And how are you today, Steph? I'm very well, thank you, Harry. Good to see you. And Steph, can you tell us where exactly are we recording this podcast from today? So this podcast is recorded today in what I call my workshop for sculpture conservation in the Glasgow Museum's Resource Centre, which is in Itzil in Glasgow. Well, for those listeners who are unfamiliar with this museum venue, um, Glasgow Museum's Resource Centre, or GMRC as we like to call it, is the main accessible storage site for objects that are not on display in our other museum buildings. Um, And Glasgow Museums is also where our technical staff are based, including Steph um, and the rest of our colleagues. So Steph, just looking around, can you share with our listeners the type of equipment or the objects you have in your workshop today? Oh well, um, so at the moment I have um, various different types of sculpture in my workshop, um, but also various objects, um, ceramics and uh, and metal objects, um, which are all part from the burial collection, which currently is closed to the public because we're working, we're busy working on the objects and on on the building itself for its opening. I believe it's late next year. Um, and so I have a couple of sculptures from the Burr Collection, um, some sculptures from China, 12th century, lots of European sculpture from the 15th, 16th century, but also some Greek sculpture, Roman sculpture, and um, I believe um, some Persian ceramics. Wonderful. So Steph, can you first of all explain what the role of a conservator in Glasgow Museums is? Well, the role of a conservator, really, we often compare ourselves to the medical profession in a way where we care for the physical and technical um, well-being of objects, which are in museums um, often described or summarized as our physical, tangible, cultural heritage. So these are all objects, um, artifacts uh, that uh, can be archaeological from prehistory up to the modern contemporary um, and we look after, literally after their physical well-being um, because this is, this is all going back to museums uh, protecting and caring for what we consider our shared cultural heritage. But conservation traditionally is very focused literally on the physicality. So that's mending an object or cleaning it or um, recording it properly, communicating it so it can be shown or is accessible um, to be seen or also for study and research. That's absolutely wonderful. I personally have always found the role of a conservator really, really fascinating because I love being part of that conversation um, whereby decisions are made about what you do with an object and I find it really creative. Mm. Um, Is there any aspects of your job, Steph, that you think um, the public would be very surprised to hear that are part of your job? I think you just mentioned it and I just wanted to answer. So that's actually really good you're asking that question because the decision-making... Um, I think that really is, is the big point for conservation. Um, there, there's the thing, we are not DIY enthusiasts um, who just like to get busy on something, for example, something I consider, oh, that doesn't look good or it doesn't look right. Um, 
I am merely someone who needs to speak to all the different stakeholders that will be the owner of an object, which in the museum is the museum, um, the curator, the researcher, anyone who has an interest to, uh, with the object. And since we define them as shared cultural heritage, that is theoretically everyone. And um, because it is not just what I see in the object or what I think is wonderful about it or how it should look, um, there's a responsibility that we appreciate all the different values and interpretation that can be contained in an object. So, for example, some objects um, can be um, uh, to, to one person um, are super important, they're cherished, they're venerated uh, because of their religious background. To another person, the same image, for example, um, and sculpture is a prime example for that, for another person or another community, that image could be even offensive or could be upsetting. And so it is, and I think sculpture is a really good example for this because we've seen <clears throat> over the last months and years these renewed debates and calls for certain sculptures, public sculptures, to be taken down because of who they represent or and how this is now valued and uh, looked at. And um, so the whole decision-making, for example, why do I want to clean this? Um, do I need to clean it? Um, it is never really my decision as a conservator. I need to understand what are the expectations of all the different stakeholders. And so um, sometimes the conservation treatment can be literally not to do anything. Be um, and that is, uh, but it's still a conscious process of coming to that decision that the best thing to do is to actually just leave it, record it, document it. And I think um, what I think is quite unique to Glasgow and Glasgow museums is really, um, and that's something I would be interested in exploring more, is really to get this discussion and the decision making out to the broader public and wider audiences and not only with my professional colleagues, the curator or researcher. That's very interesting. I think there are people who will have comments to make mm -hmm. about that point as well. Steph, can you tell us what inspired you to get into the conservation field? It's quite funny because I think I've always been, uh, I've grown up uh, in the 70s, so there were no computers and anything, so I, I got dirty in sand pits and run and jumping around in rivers, so I think I was always a really um, hands-on person. Also my family, uh, lots of people in my family were all craftspeople, again, all people working with their hands, so I think I was always exposed to... DIY <laughs> in a way and um, always loved stories. I always loved storytelling, listening to stories. Um, I loved the Greek and Roman mythology. Um, as I think especially stories that are not clear-cut or where um, I, I like these stories that have ethical dilemmas I guess in a way. Um, and um, yes, so I think I, I was always told, oh you're very good in art um, and um, but then I really didn't quite know what I wanted to do after school or even during school I, because everything I seemed to enjoy doing wasn't necessarily considered a serious subject. <laughs> uh, I wasn't that great with mathematics and uh, as I say I enjoyed music, art and sport. Um, and uh, it was in the end a computer in a job center, um, which was one of the first computers set up and it would ask you what your interests are and you typed everything in and you pressed the button and it told you what your ideal job is and believe it or not, it told me conservator restorer. 
which at that point I had no idea what that is, but I thought that sounds very interesting. And so I looked it up and I thought, fantastic, because what it said is, um, it's obviously uh, history, an interest in history and the storytelling, but also it's the practical care, the practical technical care for objects. So it kind of um, combined in that way. Steph, what do you enjoy most about your job? I think the encounters with the objects. Um, and uh, again, the co one course I did in conservation um, here in Britain, this is also how I came to Britain through conservation. It was very difficult at the time to do in Germany. And um, over various ways and avenues and detours, I basically came to Britain to study conservation here. And my second course, my master's degree I did, um, the course organizer, he's written a fantastic book where he calls objects reluctant witnesses to the past. And I think that for me is what really encapsulates the um, why objects also are so important and why museums are important. Because it's really once you engage with an object, and kind of looking what the materials are, how was it constructed, why is it damaged, is it damaged, is it wear and tear, you can, you can start to see how an object, um, it's reanimating that story, you can start to see how, uh, you know, how it, the object might have been used, or again, sculpture often uh, vandalized, and again, these things all show something about changes in value, or um, you can then sometimes, if you're lucky, and you can date them, place them into a specific period, and really relate them to a certain event. And um, I think the, the lovely thing about that is it's always an encounter with people, it's the object is just literally like a medium and so sometimes I feel like a time traveler because I feel I can connect with people in the past because I also I can understand their motivations I understand a, a certain sculpture for example like this the amount of work that has gone into it I also understand they probably encountered many <laughs> technical difficulties and again there's problem solving going on and again this is probably something I would like um, to see for museums and conservation to do um, to open that area more up to the to the public um, and to broader audiences because I think it's just really it's like a forensic scientist um, retracing those steps. Well that's what I was thinking about actually <laughs> as you were talking about um, talking there because I think it sounds to me and I'm sure it sounds to a lot of the listeners that your job is is about a lot of detective work. Yes, yes. Sometimes you have a lot of evidence yes. perhaps in folders and files and images but I'm sure there are some objects for which you know absolutely nothing about. Exactly and there I think they're the most intriguing ones um, because also one problem can be um, so, for example, we have that with paintings and paintings conservation. Some paintings are so famous or so well known, or they are painted by a, a certain artist who is really revered more like a celebrity, I would say, where um, it can become really difficult to maybe, when you start to investigate that painting as a conservator and you start to realize that there's evidence that maybe doesn't quite confirm what everybody thinks about that painting and especially when it comes to aspects of authenticity, what's original, it can become very very difficult um, because and again I think it's because people we all attach values for different reasons to things and um, it can be really difficult kind of um, dashing someone's ideas of their values, what they 
want this object to be. You might actually remember the Shiva sculpture yes, in San Mungo, well. um, which I think is, is a prime yeah. example for that, where um, the investigation, the conservation investigation revealed um, a different story. But um, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like what you, what you do is like a game of... Um, who do you think you are, but yes. not with people, but with objects. <laughs> yes, yes. And some of the stories you trace back are fascinating. Some of the stories are quite shocking, really. Yes, as because well. Because what we thought we knew is just not the case. It's 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 that as well, the object, but also sometimes, um, just even how, sometimes I wonder, for example, how do we, how does Glasgow end up with the 12th century Chinese Buddhist sculpture of Guan Yin. Um, so also the, the history of collecting. And again, even that even shows that um, objects, I mean, Chinese art, for example, it looks very different to what, what Europeans were used to. We were all very primed with the classical Greek marble sculpture. But to still have people who collect an object from a culture and an object that's really quite outlandish and um, there's no reference but there's still something that's communicating or that triggers um, for that person wanting to, to collect it or have it. Um, and so sometimes really those stories, um, we have been gifted a lot of objects. Um, some uh, there can be really powerful stories having worked with the artist Christine Borland on her commission in commemoration of the centenary of World War One. Um, that was quite quite a that was became very emotional because she started looking at our collection of objects that are associated with World War One, which doesn't only need to be um, medals and and uniforms, but also um, little everyday objects. And there have been some objects that were um, probably used as good luck charms and um, and then again you get these sporadic um, records or you just get snippets of what has been recorded and there's there's one object I was really affected by um, it's a grammaire française so it's a book about French grammar and it has bullet holes through it and it was found in a dugout um, in um, and after the the first world war and you just immediately you just wonder What's that doing in a dugout on a battlefield? Um, what, and so I think these, these are very powerful um, objects because there's, there's no value in it in terms of money or, um, you know, but I think it's a, very, it's, it's a very potent object where I think everyone just um, starts to think, how did that, uh, did it save someone's life with the bullet holes? Did, some, did the soldier keep that to stay sane in this situation, to have something dry like a grammar book? So there is really no limit to what I think this object research and um, it's, it's the, it's always goes back to people really. But, um, and some things are just super exciting um, because it, it might it might confer, you might realize this is actually a really unusual object or it's very rare. Um, yeah. So for our listeners, can I just point out that we're actually recording this podcast in front of a spectacular, <laughs> yes. I have to say, spectacular um, object from the Bible yeah. Collection. It's a wonderful carving of the goddess Quan Guan Yin. And um, many people remember it in the on display in the borough collection, mm. but it's unusual for us today because instead of seeing 
um, the beautiful greenery of Pollock Park in the background. We actually have the green of a door because it's inside and the your, your workshop. And absolutely. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us, Steph, just yes. exactly what you've been doing and what kind of work you've been doing so, on this fabulous sculpture? Yes, uh, she is fabulous. And uh, uh, it's, it's, I, I, it's actually really interesting because we have lots of people who walk past and who are just, um, she really captures people's attention, which I think is quite right. Um, uh, she's, I say she, um, this, this sculpture really is one object of about 600 objects I have on my object list um, uh, of objects I need to kind of record, document, potentially clean or mend for the redisplay for the Burl collection. And so I literally, I had my eye on the sculpture for a very long time. I've seen the sculpture in the Burl collection. Um, it's just absolutely wonderful. It's actually very similar to a European, a medieval European wood sculpture, um, which uh, we, we have also a lot in the Burrow collection. They're quite specific in terms of the materials. It's, it's carved wood and then the wood would be um, covered with a ground layer and then you get into really elaborate surface decoration techniques of painting to imitate um, the flesh tone, for example, of the skin, but also um, to get textures of brocade, of, of the kind of cloth people would have worn. And all it's all done with um, surface decoration. So that's with painting, with colors, with gilding. Um, and there are some really quite outrageous surface decoration techniques. So this one is in the same, it's, it's the same idea in terms of sculpture making, but what is interesting is there are different materials used. So instead of the ground layer to chalk, um, here we have uh, clay, which is, is not surprising. I guess for China they had some very fine clays. Um, but it's, it's also interesting, we had some analysis done on the, on the pigments we found on the green and the red. They're all really very old pigments, which means they would have been readily available. And again, this is a site in conservation where we get into kind of um, dating objects. So, for example, if you find um, a synthetic pigment um, that wasn't available before the 20th century because it has to, it's man-made and has to be made through complex processes, uh, you can say that that area where that's been painted on is probably not 15th century because you would not really expect them to have had a pigment in the 20th century. But saying that, it can always be a later overpaint or a repair, which doesn't mean that the entire work is not authentic. So this is just to show it can become really complex, but it is just like in forensic science. So it's a mix of um, really doing a lot of scientific analysis, but also then putting that into broader context. And again, there's another group of stakeholders that are important, like scientists, um, chemists, uh, who have a specific knowledge of pigments, and, um, and then art historians of um, history of technology, for example, who who can provide much. So it's, it's, it's always going on journeys and just finding out more and more. Can I ask you, yes. have you been cleaning this object? Because I can see details that I've never noticed before. That's probably the light. Is it from probably? Because <laughs> yes. I've never, I have I, not noticed before yes. how lovely and green yes. um, the, the hillside that Guanyin is actually standing on. But the other thing you mentioned earlier on is the eyes. Can you talk about the yes. eyes? Well, to very quickly say, I've started doing something. So she's actually been in the freezer 
for a week, which uh, was quite interesting. My colleagues and me, we, um, we had to wrap her to put her in the freezer and the, we put her in the freezer um, because there is some evidence of woodworm infestation. Oh. We, we think it's not active, but uh, to be honest, I didn't want to really risk it because this um, object has suffered from woodworm. So underneath a lot of what looks intact are voids and holes, so it is very vulnerable. So sometimes it's just literally the gilded decorated surface that's there, but there's a hollow underneath. Um, also, the other problem is if we don't do anything and it goes back into the barrel with other wooden objects, um, the woodworm very happily will move on. <laughs> so this is, again, this is a standard conservation investigation to check for this. So we put her in the freezer uh, for a week and she came out um, and I started doing some cleaning tests um, just to see, for example, um, what can be cleaned. It also informed me already that there is water gilding as opposed to oil gilding. Mm -hmm. um, so cleaning tests can it's kind of semi-analytical, it already shows what, what materials might mm. have been used. Um, the cleaning tests are done because what I want to clean off is the dirt, but I obviously don't want to remove anything of the original materials. Um, so, so it can get quite complex because often what works for dirt also works for the original materials. Um, with something like this, there's also an issue with cleaning, um, so for example, the prominent earlobes. Um, I was told by um, Noura, our curator, that with these Buddhist sculptures, people would have rubbed the earlobes and then rubbed their own earlobes to transfer that blessing or that... Um, what, what the state is giving them to themselves. So again, this is where I get back to these discussions of ethics. Um, should we remove that? Um, it's evidence for that human interaction. And also, I think it's, it's also really important, although this is a sculpture, um, it has a real presence. And for, for people um, who, who would go and see this image, it's, it's, not, it's not a static um, physical thing. It's a manifestation. It's um, so so. There is, I would say, there's something living there. And uh, again, traditionally Western conservation, we've been very. Um, I think also in Britain, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. Um, there has been a lot of overcleaning done. But saying this is again, that's what we judge it today because we we now have again we focus on different aspects. Mm of objects. In the past it was about they had to look clean and cared for. So there would be also a lot of restoration where areas of loss of paint or other materials would be um, restored. Uh, and again that's quite controversial today because in a way this is, this is now an 800 year old sculpture. We wouldn't necessarily expect it to look like it was made yesterday. Um, so there's an aspect of authenticity as well. And I think it's, again, the, it shows the wear and tear, so how it was used, which for me at the end is, is the important thing as well. And, the, um, and what I said before, in a way, the sculpture being really alive, what is quite striking with this one um, is the pupils of the eyes, um, which I believe are, might, might be hematite, which is this kind of dark grey, um, luster, um, um, what is it, a stone or, or mineral, and so 
the pupils are actually really quite sparkly. They reflect. And this image is the Guan Yin um, of the water moon Guan Yin. So it's an image of Guan Yin sitting um, on, on a high up on a rock cliff and she's contemplating um, the kind of the meaning of the world or the suffering of the world and humans um, at, in the reflection of the moon over the sea. So I would imagine <laughs> if this sculpture being in a temple and the yes. way you've described the eyes that being dimly lit with candles in yes. a temple the pupils would possibly sparkle in the candlelight. The pupils would sparkle also the the skin tones um, is at the moment very dirty but um, I believe there is a there's a lacquer with gold um, dust in it so the the exposed um, skin parts of of the body of and the face of this deity um, I think they would have had a real glow uh, so, so radiate a, a kind of illuminating glow in a way, which makes complete sense for such an image. But I think these aspects, um, light is something we always forget to take into account when we look at this, because the light, to me, these sculptures are not static objects, they would become animated. And I think that's something very important to bear in mind. It's the same for medieval um, sculpture in, in churches, they weren't static art objects they would become animated. Also, the other aspects to think about is, for example, the um, the sound. So if that is singing hymns or um, if that is prayer or chanting. So they were, they were real presences and, and animated. And I think sometimes, um, again, with exhibition, for example, I would love to do an exhibition just on really trying to recreate the lighting of some sculptural mm, artworks wonderful. and see how that changes. Uh, <laughs> How can people find out more about the work that conservators do or perhaps um, become a conservator themselves, Steph? What advice would you give them? What advice I would give is uh, there is the, here in, in uh, Britain, there is the um, Institute for Conservation, ICON, they're called. So that would be a first place, I think, to look up. They have various um, uh, information about what conservation is and what conservation does. I would also recommend to look up the International Council of Museums Conservation Committee, short ICOMCC. They have a, because I think they have a wonderful um, approach to defining what a conservator mm. does rather than what conservation is. Um, and, uh, and so ICON, as I say, they will be, they will also have information about how to become a conservator. Um, for me personally, I can just only say conservation is, is such a broad discipline. There really is, um, and, and a lot of people come to conservation, they already have a degree or they've already done something else. Um, so anything coming from sciences or anything to do with arts, history, um, it's it's just a real because all of this is applicable <laughs> really to conservation and um, in in the UK um, it's generally there are various conservation courses degrees um, uh, and again ICON I would assume will have an overview of uh, where these are um, there is for example here in Glasgow is uh, is, is a conservation course in textile conservation the Textile Conservation Centre. So again, it's, it's also great because um, uh, my colleague Sophie, now a colleague, she, she started here last year as a conservation student from Durham University. So as part of the education, it's very practical. Um, 
so ein Internship in, in a museum workshop, in a conservation workshop, is part of the academic qualification and training. And again, I think that's a bit like a medical professional. There's so much theory, um, but you know, at one point, it is all about how you put this into practice. So some conservators uh, specialize in, in science, conservation science. Um, they like to work in laboratories. Some conservators really just prefer the bench work, meaning doing the actual work. Other conservators get very interested in the philosophies and the theories and um, academic questions. So there is really there's really no kind of boundary. Um, and as I say, I think it's, it's something for everyone, really. Well, Steph, there's even interest in our conversation um, <laughs> as, we, as we speak, because we have a question I'd like to put to you. Um, and the question is this from one of our listeners. How would, how would I become a conservator? I'm in my early 40s and I'm in the middle of an art history degree. Is it too late for me? It's never too late to become a conservator, and um, uh, fantastic. I mean, art history is one of those those things. is obvious that that's a very good place to start. Uh, just as I said before, um, I would probably uh, look in at, um, the web page of the Institute of Conservation, ICON, um, here in in Britain, and they will have a lot of uh, courses listed. Another way to get into it is um, probably even approaching a museum um, and find out if they have a conservation department, speak to a conservator there and maybe see if there's an opportunity to volunteer or to um, do an internship, whatever specific museums might have available. Again, here in Glasgow Museums we've had a, um, we had, uh, we have really a, a very big emphasis on volunteering so I had um, and I have to say I had all age groups as well who've been interested so it's it's never too late um, museum would be good but also um, if if the museum nearby maybe doesn't have a conservation department because that's another issue but that sometimes happens um, do contact conservation profession um, as I said icon and um, yeah, and conservators are always happy <laughs> to talk about what we do. Thank you very so. much for that, Steph. So the second question we have from one of our listeners is this. What is your most memorable piece of work and why? Ooh, that's a very good question. There's a, there's a couple. I think the most recent one um, was um, a bit of wall that came out of the England Street tea rooms here in Glasgow that happened to have... Macintosh stencil on it and um, that was uh, that was quite a challenge in terms of conservation but also um, just really very exciting I think one of those those few things that are original Macintosh um, and again the the responsibility maybe that then sits on my shoulders in doing the right thing and uh, getting this conserved so this was really interesting also it just I think it introduced me properly to Macintosh um, I think I had a very limited view of Macintosh like many people have and so that was really exciting another one was the Shiva sculpture in St Mungo's Museum um, literally because I think that sent me on a personal journey for lots of reasons but it also uh, brought me to India where I presented the whole conservation treatment um, at a conservation conference in New Delhi so 
it, it made not just the, the journey in my mind, retracing these stories for an object, um, it, just, it, it actually made it tangible even by bringing me to India. So Fascinating. And our next question is, um, can being a conservator be a mid-career switch for someone with a science but not an arts background? Yes, completely, Good. completely. Just as I said before, um, it's never too late to do conservation. We all have that. Uh, I think it's just really thinking about we all, it's thinking about we all care for things. And it can be as simple as uh, you caring for your old teddy bear, who which, which always goes into a special place, or you don't give to your youngest niece to tear apart. In a way, that's really, in a nutshell, I think, what conservation is to me. It's it's a practice of care, and so it's there. Anyone can engage with it. Um, and uh, the the thing to learn really is to kind of rein in what maybe is the personal liking, and really um, use use the decision making as a way of um, collaboration and communication and informed decision making. And dare I say, it's a negotiation and it's compromising. And our last question is, do you need a qualification to work in the conservation department? Yes, for museums, this is also to, um, to for example, avoid that. Um, uh, and it's all the training is really, it's just really, it's about that, that the ethics and the decision making. It's about realizing that these objects, they don't belong to me. So I have a responsibility as a custodian um, to, to work on an object that, that takes into account all of these different values and um, ideas contained with it. And that's really the important thing why um, in most countries, conservators working in museums um, need to have a qualification. But the qualification is all about that you can say, um, for example, you come to the conclusion, my treatment is not to do anything, but you need to be able to show why. And um, so it's, it's um, a sign, as I said before, also, because there's no art background that doesn't matter because conservation kind of you will be probably surprised how much you actually know about art uh, because again I think conservation is one of those things that breaks down all of these categories and ideas of what what is this and what is that um, it's you have to you bit of a generalist and um, you sometimes quite surprised how much also I think intuitively we actually do understand or no, so it's... Um, thanks, Steph. I'm sure our budding conservators out there really appreciate your <laughs> yes. advice, so thanks very much yes. for taking the time to answer those additional questions. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time and for listening. Well, that's all we have time for today in the Glasgow Museum's podcast, folks. Remember to check us out on our social media channels if you haven't already done so. You can use the hashtag GMPodcast to keep the conversation going. And also, if you like what you've heard today, you can follow us right here on SoundCloud so that you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Harry Dunlop, and this has been the Glasgow Museums Podcast. Thank you very much for listening.